Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. Thank you to Lee for the word you brought last week. Uh, Lee start, started us off on this series of looking at the FIRE values, the, the, the network partners in Harvest Catch the FIRE that we're a part of. Um, their, their values are called FIRE values. Now, interestingly, we have not adopted those values since we became part of that stream. They've been our values for years. We worded it differently. But all of those things in those values, uh, Father's love revealed through Jesus, that's about keeping Jesus at the center. Because when we see Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And so the centrality of Jesus has always been a theme for us as a church. Intimacy, presence of the Holy Spirit, presence of God, hearing his voice. We've always had as a core value the importance of the presence of God through worship, hearing the voice of God, the prophetic. Those have been our core values for years um, restoration of the heart and soul. That's what's been happening this morning. We believe in healing. We believe in people being set free. And so that's, that's been a core value of ours for very many years. And then the last one, extending the kingdom through equipping, empowering, and anointing the Holy Spirit. That's about mission. This church has been a missional church for hundreds of years. It, it's just a part of the DNA of who we are. So we're expressing them this way now. But there's no, it's just different wording. The values are the same, but we want to look at those over the next few weeks. So we're looking at the Father's love um, over the next couple of weeks, last week, this week, and next week, and we're talking about the Father's love revealed in Jesus Christ. I have a question for you as we start. This is not a rhetorical question, so it requires an answer. Do you have any idea how good and lovely your Heavenly Father is? Yes? No, you don't. No, you don't. No offense, but you haven't got a clue. You, you simply do not have a clue. Let me explain. I was listening to Radio 4 the other day, um, as one does. And uh, they were talking about uh, this new telescope that scientists have developed to look at Jupiter. And I think I've got my facts right. Someone I'm certain will correct me if I'm wrong. Jupiter, I think, is the largest planet in our solar system. Looking for a nod from someone. Yes, it is. And they've developed this telescope that is powerful enough now to be able to see the surface of Jupiter. That's astounding. Because it's at least four or five miles away. It's a jolly long way up in the sky. And, and what they were saying was that there has been a, a, a meteorite, a, a lump of rock, that had been traveling towards the surface of Jupiter. And this, this meteorite was the size of Earth. Get that in your head. A rock the size of Earth traveling through space towards Jupiter. Now, if that meteorite had hit Earth, it would have knocked our little planet off of its position and probably ended all life on this planet instantaneously. This thing traveled towards Jupiter, and when it hit Jupiter, they were able to see it through this new telescope that they've developed. And it just went poof. It did not affect Jupiter in any way, shape, or form. But this massive rock, the size of Earth, turned to dust. Now, you see, that astounds me. And scientists, as they discover more and more, are realizing how little they know about the size of our universe. 
You see, when I was at school, and obviously, you know, most of us in this room were all at school at the same time, because we're all the same age. We thought we knew everything. We, we thought we knew how big the universe was. It's amazing, in the three or four years since I've left school, just how much greater discovery there is of the universe and a realization of just how big it is, the vastness of the universe, and the realization, actually, that we will never know just how big it is. You with me? Same with God. You see, when I was at school, I remember those sort of little models, that, you know, with clothes hanger wire things with balls on them that represented the solar system. You know. We thought that was it. Certainly, I thought that was it. But then there's a realization of, of you get to the point where get to the place where you you know how little you know. You get to realize just how little you understand. It's a good place to be. Because there's always more. And it shouldn't become a daunting prospect. It should become an exciting prospect. I'm excited whenever the scientists discover more about our universe. Have you noticed that the scientists are going both ways? Some of them are realizing how big it is. Others are going smaller and smaller. We used to think an atom was the smallest part. That's big now. You know, and they're going more and more into detail. The intricacy of the design of this universe. And they're realizing that there's probably particles so much smaller than they could ever conceive, and they'll probably not even be able to come up with even more stupid names to give them. The vastness and the intimacy of our universe. And so it is with God. You, you see, we think we know. But we only know what we, we, we're limited in our understanding. We only know that which we have come to understand so far. And I want to suggest that there is more. There is more. And when it comes to understanding the Father's love revealed in Jesus, what does that mean? Well, Jesus said of himself, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is so much more to God than we can ever know. And when we think we know, friends, we've got a problem. Because what we do is we, we get an understanding of God... And then we limit God to our understanding and we create a box to put him in. And, and the reason for that is because we like to be in control. We like to understand something. We don't like to give ourselves utterly and completely to something we don't fully understand because deep within the core of our being, we like to be in control. And yet, what we do by that is we limit that which God is able to do in our lives. And we limit that which God is able to do through our lives, in the lives of others around us. We need to take the lid off this thing. Friends, we need to take the lid off this thing. You see, my Bible tells me that I am able to do all things through Christ who gives me his strength. When he puts his power in me, is literal translation, when Christ puts his power in me, I can do all things. I want to live like that. But unfortunately, I am limiting God to the current state of my understanding of him. And so I need to blow the lid off that. I need to understand more and I need to experience more. I want to commend a book to you. I don't very often do this. But this book is one of the best books 
I have read ever on the subject of the love of God. And I'm only halfway through it. I very rarely commend a book when I haven't read it all. But I've been reading this book for the last four or five months, and I've only got halfway through it. It is not because I'm a slow reader. I could read a book of this length in an hour and a half normally. But there's so much gold in this book that I read a paragraph and I have to stop for a week, literally, just to let it take root. You can buy a copy of this from Living Stones. And they will order it for you if they haven't got it in stock. It's called God is Good. He is Better Than You Think. And it's by Bill Johnson. I want to encourage you all, get a copy of it. It is a stunningly, stunningly good book. And as I say, Living Stones can order it for you. And it just talks about the goodness of God. It talks about the love of the Father. It talks about how amazing he is. And it will challenge some of your preconceived ideas. It's challenging some of mine. I thought my God was quite big, by the way. But he was way too small. And I've had to repent of that again and again and again as I read this book. Be prepared to be on your knees when you're reading this book. Here's a word for you. It is impossible to create a concept of God that is better than he actually is. That's a direct quote from this book. It is impossible to create a concept of God that is better than he actually is. That was one of the phrases that I had to stop and meditate on for about three weeks, literally. You see, my brain is amazing. Because you know, God gave it to me. The brain is an incredible thing. You know, your imagination is staggering. And I, in my imaginator, I can imagine God. And I can imagine this most incredible God. I love to do that sometimes. Just to sit and imagine how good God is. But I am not capable, because of the restrictions of being human... I am not capable in my finite mind to actually conceive of how good he is. And no matter how good I try and imagine him, no matter how awesome I conjure up an image in my head, no matter how powerful, all-knowing, all that other stuff, no matter how good I might imagine him, I'm not capable of getting anywhere close to how good the reality is. If that doesn't blow your mind, nothing will. And dwell on that for a couple of three weeks. You see, either God is greater than we can imagine, or he isn't God. We are. So if you are able to imagine your God, and you believe that you've got it sorted, that there's nothing more than you're able to imagine, you've chosen to become God. Because you've chosen to be in control. Your God needs to be bigger. The beautiful thing about our God is he wants us to discover that. He wants us to go on a lifelong, eternity-long journey of discovering just how good he is. Because it will take all of eternity to actually discover that. And eternity, my friends, is quite a long time. You know, the only way to enable God to bring you to a place of greater revelation 
is to dwell in his presence. It's the only way. Reading about it is not going to do it for you. Even reading the word of God is not going to do it for you unless you read it in the presence. You see, you can read this as an historical document. There's a, an archaeological dig that's been discovered in the last few days. And they've discovered, actually, wow, one of the Bible stories turns out it was true. Who would have thought it? You see, you can read this as an historical document, but if you read it in the presence, it becomes the living word of God. The living word of God. You ever notice, by the way, if you read the creation narratives, this is an aside, but it's a good one. If you read the creation narratives, it says that whilst Adam and Eve were walking in the garden, the word, the word walked with them. Think about that for a moment. Who's the word of God? Jesus there in the garden, walking with Adam and Eve. Wow. Just came into my head, thought I'd share that with you. Revelation 3.21 says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. It's talking about the last days, church. We are in the last days because Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen? To him who overcomes, that's what was happening while we were doing worship earlier. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. The last day's church is meant to be a throne room presence carrying church. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. And I want to suggest to you, no, I'm not going to suggest. I want to tell you, we need to have a fresh revelation of the Father's love. We need that. Church, we need it. And if we can open ourselves up to a fresh revelation of his love, and if we can allow ourselves to receive it, because, you know, it's all very well watching it and seeing other people receiving it. And think, oh, isn't it lovely? I'm so glad they're being blessed. We can walk away unchanged. I want to have an, an experience of his love. And I've been so privileged to experience his love over the years. But I want more. Now there is a school of thinking that I have heard as a pastor many times over the years. Rachel and I will be able to tell you this. Where, where people have this concept that God has a sort of a bucket of love and he shares it out. And, and sometimes people have this this view that they, they don't want to trouble God because, you know, he's got more than enough people wanting his time and attention and that there's only, you know, a limited amount of love to go around. That's what's called a lie of the enemy. But some of us sitting in this room believe it, even though you wouldn't articulate it in the sarcastic way I've just done it. Some of us believe it. And it needs breaking because it is holding the church of Jesus Christ back. Let me tell you something. As a parent, I have two incredibly beautiful children. They are the most beautiful children in the world, as are yours. Now, my little boy, 
who is 21 now. Yet when he was born, I was just holding him in my arms. <laughs> Trying to imagine that now. <laughs> I was holding him in my arms. And I just looked at him, and I had a heart so overwhelmed with love. I loved that child with all of my heart. No question. No question. Three years later, we had another child, a daughter. Both tower over me now. Three days' time, she also becomes an adult. How did that happen? Two adult children. Your pastor is getting old. But when I looked at Lydia and I held her in my arms, I didn't sort of hold her in my arms and say to her, I'm terribly sorry, giving all my love to your brother. And I didn't turn to her brother and say, you've enjoyed all of my love for three years, now you've got to share it. A beautiful thing happened. I continued to love Samuel with all of my heart. But I began to love Lydia with all of my heart too. And you see, God is love. And we are made in the image of God. And those of you who are ch have children or grandchildren will know, if you have more than one, that you don't love them less because you've got more of them. What happens is your love multiplies. And that's the economy of the kingdom of heaven. And this lie of the enemy that there's only a certain amount of love to go around needs to be broken in the name of Jesus. Because God loves you with all of his heart. My Bible tells me that my father loves me. Listen to this. Because if he loves me, he loves you as well. He loves me as much as he loves Jesus. You read it, John 17. That's astounding. The trouble is, so many of us are not very good at knowing how to receive love. One of the tactics of the enemy is to stop people being able to receive the Father's love. Because love makes you feel secure. And if there can be an army rising up of children of God who are secure in the knowledge of who they are. Hell runs in the opposite direction. So he's going to do everything he can, the enemy of our souls, to whisper those little lies into our ears, to steal away from us the peace of Jesus, to rip out of your soul your God-given identity so you no longer know who you are. And so many of us don't know how to receive love. I'm so privileged to have two amazing parents. I want to honor my parents. I thank God for them. We went to visit them on Friday, and it was such a joy to spend time with them. Such a joy when we arrived at their house to, to greet them and be greeted by them in a loving embrace. It's precious. It's precious. Such a joy to know that both of my parents are walking with Jesus. As a child, that wasn't always the case. That was not always the case. 
And my dad, I love my dad. I honor him. I thank God for him. But my dad, when I was a child, he, he didn't really know how to show love. I mean, we were blessed. He, he showed love in the only way he knew how. We'd get a new bike for Christmas almost every year. I tell you, none of my friends did. We were the first people I knew to get a computer. You try telling a young person that today. We had a Vic 20. Some of you haven't got a clue what that is. But I could program it in a language called BASIC, which is probably just as well, because it's the only way I understood it. I could, I, could, I could cause the screen to change color. I could write a program. You could do it as well. Same age, Andy. <laughs> I could write a program to, to make the screen change color. Staggering. My school didn't even have a computer when I got one. When I went into school and told people that my dad had bought me a computer, they didn't believe me. I was privileged. And if I tell you how many televisions we had in 1979, my friends didn't believe me, and they were all color. Hmm? They were. I was privileged. I was blessed. And my dad showed us how he loved us by what he gave to us. But what he didn't do, and he wasn't able to do, but hallelujah, he does it now. And I thank God for that. What he didn't do, I don't remember him giving me an embrace. I don't remember that. I remember when I was a very, very small child that happening, but from about the age of five or six, I have no recollection of any embrace from him until the day I got married. Now, as a child, I didn't understand that. But now, when I, when I look at my dad's life, when I look at his upbringing, and I see the tragedy of his upbringing and the pain that he went through. You see, when he was a child, there was a day when his mum and dad sat him down and said to him and his younger sister, who was seven years younger than him, they said, we are going to go our separate ways. You choose for yourself tonight which parent you are going to go with and you will never see the other parent again. Now, as a six or seven-year-old girl, his sister ran into the arms of her mother, understandably. She didn't see her father for about 40 years, I think it was. My dad saw that, and as an as a early teens, 12, 13-year-old, something like that, he had to make a choice at that point. What was he going to do? Well, he saw his sister embracing his mum, so he said, well, I'll go with dad. He had to make a choice. So he went with his dad. He didn't see his mother for years. He was restored to her, and his sister was eventually restored to her father. But the damage. And so he, he grew up in an environment, and obviously he was, a, he was a war baby, not obviously, but he was a war baby, so his dad was away a lot anyway. And frequently, he would come into the house, into the kitchen in the morning, and there'd be a man there, and he'd say, are you my dad? He didn't meet his dad until he was six years of age. Now, understanding that, 
has put a totally different understanding on my perspective and my own childhood. You see, unless you receive the love of a father, you cannot give the love of a father. And that's not gender-bound, by the way. Unless you receive the love of heaven, you cannot give the love of heaven. And you can have all the theology in the world to give you the theory of it, but unless you've experienced it, you cannot give it away. And I want to see the fire of God so prevalent that we know the love of the Father revealed to us in Jesus. Now very briefly, very briefly, I want to read to you from a little bit of the book of Ruth. Obvious book when you're thinking about the Father's love. The book of Ruth is a prophetic picture of Jesus. Let me just explain very briefly before I read from Ruth chapter 3. Boaz, in, in the book of Ruth, is a prophetic picture of Jesus. Ruth is a prophetic picture of the church. So Boaz, the bridegroom, Ruth, the bride. And Naomi, who helps Ruth to be united to the bridegroom, is a prophetic picture of Holy Spirit. So understand that we want to have the Father's love revealed in Jesus. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the full embodiment of the Father. The Father is love, therefore Jesus is an embodiment of love. And this book of Ruth is a prophetic picture of it. It's a, a prophetic forerunner for the arrival of Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's well worth having a read through the book of Ruth with that in mind. That Boaz represents Jesus, Ruth represents uh, church, and Naomi represents Holy Spirit. Chapter 3 says this. One day, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? So Holy Spirit, Naomi, saying to the one she loves, I want you to be secure. I want you to know your true home, a place where you will be provided for, cared for. Verse 2, is not Boaz, with whom, ser with whom servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? So Holy Spirit is saying, actually, you're going to find that home in the family. You are a child of God. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor, representing Jesus. Jesus is the judge. Winnowing is about separating the wheat from the chaff, separating the stuff that shouldn't be there from the gold stuff that needs to be collected. That's what Jesus does. And so it says, tonight he will be doing that. But, uh, where are we? Sorry, verse 3. This is the key verse. Wash and perfume yourself. And put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Verse 5. I will do whatever you say. This is the church saying to Holy Spirit, I will do whatever you say. 
So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her. I tell you, it is always wise to do whatever your mother-in-law tells you. <laughs> Ruth 3.3. 3. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed, then go down and wait and present yourself. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, cover yourself, present yourself. If, church, we want to have an encounter with the Father, we do it by coming to Jesus because he reveals the Father's love for us. If we want to have an encounter with Jesus, then these four things we must do. Wash ourselves, anoint ourselves, cover ourselves, and present ourselves. That's what we have to do. Many, many Christians repent enough to be forgiven, but not enough to see the kingdom. Think about that for a moment. We repent enough to be forgiven. We get our ticket into heaven. And then we go on living our own sweet way. Many Christians do that. I don't want to just get my ticket into heaven. I want to live as a citizen of heaven here and now. I need to repent to such a depth and level that there is no longer anything in my heart, my hands, or my mind that is going to prevent me from ascending the hill of the Lord. You know, if ever you are doing something or thinking something or holding on to something where if Jesus walked into the room, you would feel shame, get rid of it. Wash yourselves. You cannot, friends, you cannot afford to allow stuff to linger. You see, Jesus said to the disciples, John chapter 13, I'm going to get down on my knees. And I'm going to wash your feet. He said, you've been cleansed. Those that have had a bath only need their feet washed. Because as they walk through the daily life, they pick up stuff from the world as they walk through. What he was saying is, you've come to me. You've become disciples. You've been washed clean. Prophetically washed by the blood of the Lamb. He hadn't yet died, but that's what he was talking about. You've been washed, but even though you have given your heart to the Lord, even though you've repented and said, Lord, forgive me, I give my heart to you and I take your heart as you give it to me, as you walk through life, you pick stuff up. Every day we need to wash. We need to be cleansed. If you want to have an encounter with Jesus revealing the Father's love, the first thing you've got to do is wash yourself. And secondly, you've got to anoint yourself. Put on perfume, church. And the perfume of the church is the fragrance of the aroma of Christ. How do we put on the fragrance of the aroma of Christ? We have the anointing of Holy Spirit. We need to anoint ourselves. And the word to anoint literally means to smear with, to rub on. You see, when we anoint people with oil... We have these silly little vial, vial things of oil and we put a tiny little bit on our finger and we put a little smudge on there. And yes, it is a prophetic sign. But Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. 
It is as though oil is poured on the head. It's referring to the head of Aaron, the high priest. Down on the beard, down on the collar of his robes. It is there as though the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Mount Zion represents the presence of God. It is a dry, dusty, and arid place. Mount Hermon was green and lush because every morning the Jew there was extravagant. If Jew were to fall in a dry and dusty place, suddenly it springs into life. When Aaron the high priest was anointed with oil, they took a huge ram's horn filled with oil and all sorts of fragrances. So the smell was incredible. And they didn't just put a little bit on him. They poured it over him. And it poured down his face. It poured down his beard. It poured onto the, 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 the collar of his robes. It went all over his linen ephod. You need to get your linen ephod wet with oil. The linen ephod, by the way, was part of his priestly garments. It was like a vest. And on the front of it were the precious stones. And on each of the stones were engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when the high priest was anointed, the oil went over him and it went over all of the people. You see, when you are smeared with Holy Spirit, when you are anointed, when you say, I will anoint myself, when you're saying, Holy Spirit, come. I've washed myself clean. I am a landing place for Holy Spirit. Come, fill me afresh. It should be so much that it's pressed down, shaken together, running over, and will impact those who are around you. Many years ago, it's about 25 years ago, I, I spent a whole night praying. I may have told this story here recently. I know I've told it somewhere recently, but forgive me if I've told it here. I spent a whole night praying. And uh, I didn't bother going to bed. I just I could not stop praying. Why am I telling a story of that 25 years ago? I haven't done it since, that's why. But I did then. And I went to work. And I sat there at the VDU, word processor. And, and my secretary came out of her office. And she walked past the back of my chair. And the presence of God was so strong that she fell on the floor under the power of the Holy Spirit. I didn't notice. I was just merrily typing away. Somebody else in the office said, what's happened to Linda? <laughs> so I turned around, and there she is, sort of on the floor, twitching in the power of the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, it's Holy Spirit. I want to live like that, that actually I carry the presence of God so strongly that it impacts people around me. That's how I want to live. Anoint yourself. Number three, cover. Number, yeah, number three. It's hard to count all the way up to four. Cover yourself. Cover yourself. Genesis chapter three, verse seven. When the eyes of both of them were opened, they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You know, sometimes when we do something wrong, we suddenly realize how exposed we feel. Who were they exposed to? There's only one other person there. Well, there's two other people there, but we won't worry about the devil at the moment. They were exposed to God. You see, your sin might not expose you to the people around you, but it exposes you to God. When you do something wrong, you feel exposed to God, don't you? And we try and cover it up. So they took fig leaves and sewed them together. How stupid is that? To try and cover up 
from God. But I want to read to you a few verses later, same chapter, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why did they make garments out of fig leaves? Because there wasn't anything else to make it from. At that point, there had been no sacrifice. At that point, you didn't eat meat. At that point, there was nothing had been killed. But because of their sin that needed to be covered by sacrifice, suddenly the Lord himself covers them with skin. Where did he get the skin from? He killed an animal. There was a sacrifice. There in the garden, when the very first sin happened, there had to be a sacrifice to cover their shame. Now, Ruth 3.3, wash yourself, anoint yourself, cover yourself. We need to be covered with the blood of Jesus. We have to be covered with the blood of Jesus. Because when we're covered with the blood of Jesus, our shameful nakedness is covered. And then God looks upon us and sees Jesus. He does not see our mistakes. He does not see our sin. He does not see our shame. He sees Jesus. And the angel of death passes over your house. Because you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. But you know, you can't live in an understanding of that that goes back to the day you gave your heart to Jesus. If you want to come and lay at the feet of Jesus to experience the Father's love, you have to make a choice to wash yourself, anoint yourself, and cover yourself. And then the fourth step is to present yourself. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35 says that Jesus, early in the morning, while it was still dark, used to go up a mountain to pray. He was committed to the presence of God. Throughout his ministry, he was committed to the presence of God. Are you committed to presenting yourself before the presence of God and waiting? It does not say in Ruth 3.3, wash yourself, anoint yourself, cover yourself, then go in and expect Jesus just to drop what he's doing and attend to you. It says, lay at his feet and wait. Why is that? Because he's very busy. No! Because the waiting increases the desire. The waiting separates those who want it from those who say they want it. Which is why when Sue and other worship leaders are, are leading us in a time where we're just saying, let's just press in in that place, let's just hang on. Some of you are saying, I've got some dinner in the oven. I just want to get to the preaching. That's what I came for. Or I want to get the preaching over because I didn't come for that. I, want, I just want to get to the next thing. And some of you are saying, don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. I don't care about the clock on the wall. I care about the presence of God. And I tell you, those who live like that, they see the kingdom. They see the kingdom. 
if you wash yourself, cover yourself, anoint yourself, and present yourself. Jesus himself reveals to you the love of the Father. It's an eternal love. It's an everlasting love. It is a love beyond anything you can ever imagine. And it's for you. It is for you. Jesus died for you to make this possible. For you. And as you receive it, I tell you, it is something that affects those around you. And I tell you this, when we truly start to live like that, this town will be one for Jesus. No question. No question. Look what Jesus did with 11 disciples. We won't count the one that killed himself. But look what he did with 11. And he added another one to the number. Look what he did. Changed the face of this entire world. Changed the course of history. And he still will with those that say yes and amen. The Father's love revealed in Jesus. I want it. I want you to have it. Not as something that's merely an academic exercise, but actually an experiential reality that totally transforms who we are, the way we live, and how we present our God to the people around us. Amen? Won't you stand with me? Father, we thank you that you are the only true and living God. Thank you that your love for us is never ending. Thank you that your love for us is for us. And thank you that you are always ready, always willing, always desiring to lavish your love upon us. And we say, Father, in the name of Jesus, we choose to wash ourselves. Would you just show us if there's anything we need to confess? That's how we wash. Anything we need to repent of, turn away from. And we will do it. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. That you would come. And anoint us right now. Fresh anointing of Holy Spirit. And may we be those, Father, who are covered by the blood of Jesus. And we choose to come now and present ourselves to you as living sacrifices that we might live to your praise and glory in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Great your faithfulness Oh God my Father